I was here yesterday, and I was here with a different group of people. Nobody else, I don't think anybody from Parker Ford was even here. And uh, we had about 30 kids, <clears throat> high school kids and uh, adults, lined up right here in the first three rows. Uh, and they were all from Lebanon and Lancaster County and a few from Montgomery and Chester County. Uh, but brethren churches that had sent their youth to to Pottstown to clean the streets of Pottstown yesterday. And we, it was really interesting. We started on Mervine Street and cleaned all the way south to Industrial Boulevard. And this whole group of kids, you know, filled up bags of recyclable material and bags of trash. And it was a lot of fun. You know, we went up and down. I borrowed Mike Whistler's truck and picked up the trash for him. I didn't pick up the trash. I picked up the trash bags. You know, I, I got the easy job yesterday. And then a whole group of them was actually cleaning the, the Salvation Army, cleaning all the walls and the windows and everything. And it was really neat. At one point, I walked into the Salvation Army, and I was I was going through the basement, through the back way, and I could hear two things. That, well, I could sense two things. One, I could hear singing, and these kids were singing hymns as they were cleaning the building. It was just really neat. And then uh, I could smell Lysol, you know, which is not the normal smell at the Salvation Army. I won't go into detail there, but it was just really neat to see uh, a bunch of kids having a great time serving in Pottstown. And then Wednesday, we had a group of guys who were on the south end of Pottstown cleaning out one of the Brainhurst Trust buildings. You know, there's these uh, low-income housing units down there, and we actually had a bunch of people over there. And uh, Chris, I meant to tell you, Chris was there, and that dumpster did get put. We filled it too full, and we all sat there going, will they take the dumpster, you know? Uh, and they did. It, was, it disappeared, and they never called, so we're okay. So anyway, that's what's been going on in our week. I just wanted to give you a little bit of an update. How many, how many of you guys, when you pick up the Bible, you just first, you go, I want to read Deuteronomy. That's where you start. Uh, everybody? Let's have a testimony time. Raise your hand if you're ready to say what God has used, how God has used the book of Deuteronomy in your life in the past week. You're there? Wow, somebody did raise their hand. The first service, everybody just was like, are you kidding me? You know, really? Deuteronomy? We've got to talk about Deuteronomy this morning. Well, you know, if you were in the New Testament era, what do you think would have been the answer to the question, what's your favorite book of the Bible, if you asked Peter or James or John or Andrew or any of those people? You know, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament a lot, right? And the top three books that are the most quoted, the first one is the book of Psalms. Psalms in the Old Testament is quoted by the New Testament authors more than any other book. Second is Isaiah, and of course there's a lot of prophecy in Isaiah. But third is Deuteronomy. Interesting, huh? And a book that maybe we easily neglect. We kind of push it off to the side. You know, those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We like Genesis because it has stories. And then we're like, well, get us to Joshua or get us to a later book. Or maybe we've just given up on that and we like the New Testament. I don't know. But we're going to talk about Deuteronomy this morning. And I think you really will find it interesting. Now, I always have this quote that I start out with. And I'm going to remind you again because it's really important. And that's just this. The Bible is not written to us. It is written for us. And the difference in those prepositions, to and for, that's a big difference, right? You know, I get emails from some of you periodically, and it's written to me. And I think, okay, here it is. They're addressing me about this, this, or that, and the other thing. And, and then sometimes Shelby gets an email, and she says, could you read this? And now I'm reading her email. I have to think very differently about her email, right? Every now and then I've gotten one of those emails from Shelby, or I've gotten her email, and I've, I've been supposed to look at this thing, and I think, oh, I'm going to write this reply, and then I realize I'm not allowed to. It's to Shelby. She needs to reply. What she's asking is my opinion on something. And so something that's written to us is very different than something that's written for us. Deuteronomy is written for your good. God had you in mind, but he didn't write it to you. And Moses, who wrote it, didn't write it 
to you. So as we walk through this this morning, you're going to have to think about that. Now, I was trying to think how to get us in the storyline of what God's doing in this passage. And uh, this psalm came to mind. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Who is he talking to? He's talking to himself, right? You ever talk to yourself? This is license to talk to yourself. This psalmist is writing, probably David, and he's saying, why are you cast down? What's wrong with me? Why, why, why do I just feel bad? What's wrong inside of me? Why are you in turmoil? What is wrong with Josh Blightwork? I've, I have written this psalm. Honestly, it's never been this poetic. It didn't look this beautiful. But I've said, what's wrong with me? You've said that, right? And people all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament have said the same line. They've said, why am I in the place I'm at? I thought I would get going in life and take off and head in this direction. I thought my marriage would turn out this way. I thought my kids would turn out that way. And all of it has kind of gone by the wayside. Well, one of the things these people do when they have this sort of thought is they turn back to Deuteronomy. That's one of the things the people in the Bible do. That's why it's so often quoted. They want to know what God thought about things. And frankly, there might not be a better book of the Bible than Deuteronomy to understand that. It finishes up, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. This psalmist is telling us that God is still working, and we'll probably see it. But it doesn't feel like it today. And my heart isn't feeling great. My soul isn't so good. Lord, what's wrong with me is kind of the question in here. Well, the book of Deuteronomy takes place in an interesting location. This is the southeastern Mediterranean. You all can tell that, right? I mean, you just know the world's geography well enough to pick this out. You know, you got that Google Maps thing and it can come down and zoom in. Well, here it is. The, the Egypt is on the left-hand side. And those lines are actually the route by which they, they exited Egypt. That was the exodus, right? And so we see the ten plagues were up here, and we walked through that story the last time we walked through one of these downloading the Bible series. And we wa- they wandered for 40 years, and they end up over here. Now watch closely. There's this location called the Plain of Moab. It's right next to the Dead Sea. If you were there today, you'd be in Jordan. You wouldn't be in Israel. And this is where the Exodus leads these people. They get all the way up to the edge of the Jordan River, and they're looking over into the Promised Land. And it's at this location that Moses gives three sermons. And the book of Deuteronomy records all three of the sermons. And it's from the perspective of people who are looking at the land that they've been longing to get to for 40 years. They were headed towards this land, and now they're just across the river, and they're thinking, okay, we're going to get there soon. And so these three sermons are like the last little bit. Moses is about to die, and he gives them from a perspective of, I've been leading you all this time, and I'm now asking you to listen to God in this new perspective because you're not going to have me between you and God. You're going to follow this other leader, and it's up to you to follow the Holy Spirit now and follow what God's doing. And so they're sitting on the east side of the Jordan, River, and they're looking out towards the the Israelite promised land where they're headed, okay? And that's the context for what happens. Now, these three speeches happen in a really interesting way. The first one is found, you can just pick up the, the book of Deuteronomy and you read it, one through three, but then if you want to read the rest of the speech, you have to go all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. Isn't that weird? You know, when we write a paper in English, we tell you in the first paragraph, what we're going to write about. And then we write about what we're going to write about. In the last paragraph, we say, this is what we wrote about, right? That's how we write books. That's how, you know, I have a book on my shelf. It's called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And the first chapter tells me why I should be a leader and why I can be a leader, though I'm a no good, nothing, loser leader. And it says, I can turn you from this person into this person. And then it goes 21 chapters deep, telling me all the principles that will turn me into that great leader. You all think I've become that great leader, right? So you want to buy this book, you know? And then the last chapter says, I told you, you were going to be a good leader. 
It didn't actually work that well. I, I've read the book and thought, you know what? I don't know. But that's how our books read. Now, this book reads differently. They actually have this kind of artistic quality. And he splits up a sermon and puts it at outer edges of the, the whole book. So the first sermon is all about God's history with his people. And Moses reminds these people of everything God has done for the past 40 years. He reminds them of their failure, and he reminds them of how God has made them a success in spite of their failures. Wouldn't it be interesting if God showed up and showed you all the things he's done in your life? There used to be an old hymn that said, count your blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God has done. Why do you got to see what God has done by counting your blessings? You were there for him, right? Why do we have trouble remembering what God does? You ever look back in your life and go, you know, back here, God really did some stuff. And then think of all your consciousness since then, all of the thoughts you've had, all of the plans you've made, and thought, I've just kind of moved on. And I forgot about that faith moment back there when God was so active. You know, I've been in counseling sessions where somebody's told me a line like that. And I said, so what happens? Why are you here today? And they said, well, we just kind of forgot about God once we got past that moment where we saw him act in our life. He did this great thing. It was miraculous. It was powerful. He put our marriage back together. He saved our finances. He did whatever. I hear a long list of those things. And we tend to forget God once we walk outside of the blessings, right? Well, Moses says, please don't forget what God has done in your life. He has done all of this stuff. And then it goes on at the very end. He says, let me pray for you. And he prays for each of the people of Israel, tribe by tribe. And then he dies. Last chapter of Deuteronomy ends with Moses just dying. On a mountain, looking over the land he wishes he could get into, he passes away. And that's the speech. It tells them where they've been, and it tells them how far God's brought them. That's the first speech. The second speech goes on from there, and it's like one of those really great sermons. You know, you ever see Tim at the end of a sermon? I I mean, I've known this guy since 1995. I see Tim in a different light. I sometimes look at Jay. I spy at Jay Deering during one of Tim's sermons, and I can kind of see Jay's perspective. You know, Jay remembers him since... Uh, uh, 1976, right, Jay? Yeah, and, and you know, when you know somebody that long, it's different. And you see them get really ramped up. I remember Tim giving me a sermon in college. It wasn't a sermon in front of a church. It was just in our dorm room. And he was saying, you need to blah, 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 blah. I'm like, he's still doing it. It's 2013. He's the same guy, you know. And I've heard people say, I have a friend in Pottstown who knew him when he was a little kid. He says, yeah. Tim was Tim even when he was 10 years old. I mean, that's just Tim. Well, the second sermon of of Moses in this passage is a lot like a Tim sermon. It's big. It's exhortative. It's like, please don't go backwards. Follow God. Change it. It's got a lot of energy. And here's what God's going to do. He's a just God. If you don't follow him, bad things will happen. But if you do follow him, really, really good things will happen. And it lays it all out in front of you. And it says, listen, you have a choice. Choose this day who you will serve. That's not from Deuteronomy, but it's a line that would fit this second sermon. Now, you know, if we get to the New Testament, Jesus was called into the into the desert once. And, you know, something happened in the desert. Do you remember what that was? He was tempted, right? And Satan kind of put all this stuff in front of him, said you could go to the top of the temple, throw yourself down and see if the angels save you and all this stuff. Turn some some rocks into bread so you can eat. You're hungry after 40 days of fasting. I'd be hungry too, you know. And there's all of this stuff. Where do you think that, where do you think that, that Jesus quotes from to argue with Satan? All of the quotations that are in the Gospels that are Jesus' defense against the enemy who's tempting him come from this second sermon. In their four, uh, chapter 4 through 11 and 27 through 30, they're one layer in, okay? And each one of the things that Jesus says is quoting Moses back there. 
Interestingly, one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible is this passage. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jewish people call it the Hebrew Shema. It reads this way, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your, with all your, and with all your, huh. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Why don't you like Deuteronomy? Let's be honest with each other. It's a lot of rules. There's a bunch of guidelines in the middle of Deuteronomy, right? How many of you just love rules? You just, you know, absolutely think they're wonderful. I was in Philadelphia with my kids a couple weeks weekends ago, and we saw the Declaration of Independence, and we saw the Bill of Rights, and we saw these different documents kind of laid out. They weren't the originals, you know, but they're sitting there. And, you know, Deuteronomy is a lot like that. It's like the Ten Commandments broken up. And that's one of the reasons why we don't like it, because it's all of these rules. And yet when you read this passage, love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's not a rule, right? That's, that's emotive language. God is telling us, please love me. Please love me with your heart. Love me with your soul. Love me with your hands, your strength, what you do with your, with, with your outside. Love me with the very core of your being, with your brain and your will, and love me with all that you behavior, your behavior entails. Love me with everything. This is a very different thought. And it comes from this sermon. Most important passage, maybe in all of the Bible, until you get to the New Testament. You know, when I went to Israel, the, our church sent me to Israel last year, and they decided I couldn't go alone, so I had to have a chaperone. Dave Willauer went with me. And he did keep me out of trouble, and a couple times I think I kept him out of trouble, but don't tell him I said that. You know, and when you go to Israel, there are all these things. I got them for our elders, and I had to sneak past Dave to do this because I got him one too because they were so generous to me on this trip. But we had, there are these things in the doorways. They're called mezuzahs. And you screw the, the top and the bottom end of a mezuzah into your door frame, and inside it is a piece of scripture. Because just after this verse, it says that you should keep the word of God on your doorways, and you should keep it on your foreheads. And that's Jews have those boxes that, that have the little pieces of scripture. You know what passage of scripture they have in those boxes and on the doorways and the mezuzahs? This passage. Most often, it's Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The message of Moses is, listen, guys, you have to understand that God has done all this great stuff for you in the past. That's not unlike our lives, right? Count your blessings. Think about how far God has brought you. Ponder before you walk away from God. And then the second part, the second message is, listen, give him everything, and you're going to want to go back. You're going to want to cheat on God. You're going to want to go out and do other gods. You're going to want to go and do other things. You're going to want to go your own way. Don't do it. He's a just, but he's a loving God, and he cares how you feel about him. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't know that. I didn't know that God actually cares how I feel. I thought he just cared what I did. You ever think about that? This passage says he cares how you feel. When you walk into worship and, and you know, the music is a song you don't love so much, and you're just kind of like, Eh, I can just sit here today. I'm coming back to a heart of worship. You know, that's in our heart, right? It's not okay. 
What this passage says is, bring me everything, more than a song and more than the words, more than a few guitar chords. Bring me everything that's in front of you, inside of your heart. Bring me your story. Put it out in front of you and offer it to me and say, Lord God, we love you. Heart, soul, and strength. And Moses, that's his second sermon. The third sermon is interesting. It goes to something very different. And this is why Deuteronomy is famous for not being liked. In the third sermon, that the Ten Commandments get broken down. You know, our Constitution tells us that we have a certain number of rights. The Bill of Rights specifically lay that out. You have the right to life, liberty, and the... And that one gets us in trouble, right? The pursuit of happiness. I mean, once we start going after happiness, who knows? But the government says you got that right, and I'm with them. Uh, But people pursue happiness, and the government never comes in and says, well, you shouldn't pursue happiness quite that way. Um, You should do it this way. But there's, there's other rules that are on top of those rules. And they say that you shouldn't infringe on the right of happiness that other people have. You know, in the state of Michigan, my brother's a cop, and I got him to get me the the Michigan State little law code, and it has all of these rules. And, you know, there's a rule against breaking and entering. That's true in Pennsylvania, too. But in Michigan, there's a that, that rule breaks down to these tiny little details, and it says that if you're in a KOA campground, and you go over to your neighbor's tent, and you unzip their tent, you are breaking and entering. It really gets that specific. I have a copy of it. You know, the big rules of the Bible, there's ten of them. Don't have any other gods. Don't have any graven images. Don't, don't, don't swear and take God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your parents. But, you know, those are big rules. How do they break down into small, little, confinable, definable understandings? And that's what the, the middle part of Deuteronomy does. It walks chapter by chapter through the Ten Commandments and explains what God intended. Interestingly, this week in Journey Kids, we're studying the Ten Commandments. We're studying honor your father and your mother. This is going to be a great week in Journey Kids. You know, my kids, all three of them go to Journey Kids, and I get to tell them that they're supposed to honor me. It's a, it's a really good week for me. Now, when Deuteronomy breaks this up, it doesn't talk about parents. It actually does something different. It talks about kings, prophets, priests, and judges. Those are the government leaders in Moses' day. And the ones that are going to come after him. And he says, listen, if you're going to honor your parents, you don't just honor your parents. You honor everybody else who's in authority too. So, you know, we had a realization uh, uh, last year. We were driving one of the journey kids home and we got a Pottstown cop behind us. Now, no sirens, no lights, nothing. And she was like, pull over, please, right now. I'm like, why am I pulling over? There's nothing wrong with my van. We're doing fine. She said, the cops are behind you. And she literally was getting down below the windows. An eight-year-old little girl. I'm like... Why are you hiding from the police? We have nothing to be afraid of. So this week we're bringing in one of the Royersford cops. I couldn't get a Pottstown cop, but John O'Keefe, who sometimes attends our second service, he's coming in Tuesday night to meet those kids. And I told him the cops are coming Tuesday night. And that little girl said, no, not really. You're really bringing the cops at Journey Kids? I said, yeah, we are. But you know what? You know why we're doing that is because we want those kids to honor their leaders. When they get in trouble, where do we want them to run? To the cops, not away from the cops, right? If we all run to our authority figures and we all show them respect, the Bible says different things happen. That's how the Bible handles the Ten Commandments. That's just one example. It breaks it down into all sorts of other stuff. But when the Ten Commandments are broken down, it breaks them into definable, actionable territory. Now, just think with me. Deuteronomy 6.5 said, Love the Lord your God with all your... And your... And all your... Now, just ponder this. The outer rim of Deuteronomy, one sermon... It's all about getting these people's heart back, right? You know, if God wants to get my heart, all he has to do is remind me of the times he's helped me in my life. 
I'm that narcissistic and that selfish that when he reminds me of how much he's blessed me at moments, I go, oh, why am I such an idiot that I forgot God again? Why do I think that I can walk without this worshipful heart when I realize that God did this stuff? I can tell you the times he saved me. I mean, he saved me from eternal separation from him, but he saved me from all sorts of things. You know, I prayed when I was in sixth grade that I would marry this girl. God saved me, man. <laughs> you know, like her name was not Shelby and I was saved. You know, that's a dumb, li- but the list goes on and on. I have been in moments in my life when I have needed rescue and God has come to my rescue. And if he wants to get at my heart, all he has to do is remind me of those things. And I look back to my journals, I remind myself. I go back and I look and I go, wow, God did that and he did that and he did that and it gets at my heart. And you know what? I find myself remembering that I'm supposed to love God again. I grow out of touch with this God. It's like we don't, we don't actually talk for a while. And then all of a sudden I realize, where did God go? And my heart cries out like that psalm. And I say, what's wrong with this world? Why are you so downcast? Why is my heart in turmoil? Well, the answer is because my heart hasn't been focused on God in a while. And I have to go back and I have to hear my own story and the ways God has intervened in my story over and again. Well, that's the outer rim. And then it moves one set of chapters in, 4 through 11 and 27 through 30. And it says that, that you're supposed to give your will to God, your soul. That's what soul means in the Old Testament. It's not the eternal part of you. It's your, it's your will. And it says, listen, you're going to have a choice. And there's going to be a moment when the last thing on earth that makes sense is following what God told you to do. And you're going to have to make a choice in that moment. And what you do in that moment is going to decide whole swaths of your future in your relationship with God. And Moses says, listen, are you going to love God with your soul? Are you going to give him your will? When you have a choice between doing wrong and doing right, and the wrong looks really fun, I mean, you have the the right to the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And a lot of the wrong things that are not illegal in this world will make you happy. But they will not bless God, and they will not express love to him, right? So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And then it gets to the nitty-gritty, and it says, love him with your strength as well. Just the actions you do, the things you're doing with your hands, the, the way you do your work at your job, the way you raise kids, all of the stuff that you do on an outer level is the internal part of Deuteronomy. At the very core of what it's about, it says, love the Lord your God with your behavior. You know, we don't do this very well. We don't remember very well, right? I was in Jay during Sunday school class last week. And they got talking about conscience, and it got me thinking. I have a picture in my mind that immediately comes to my forefront of my, of my head when I think about conscience. What do you think of? What do you think of when you think of conscience? Don't go profound and deep. I think of an insect, a cricket. I think of Jiminy Cricket, right? My kids have this movie, Pinocchio. It was created before I was born, and it's still good today. And you know, it's a really good, I've gone back and seen it in the last couple of years. It's a really good explanation of how temptation actually works, right? I mean, Pinocchio really wants to go the right way, but things keep turning his head. And each time something turns his head, there's this other boy who kind of leads him down the primrose path, and then people start turning into a donkey. It's really weird at the end of that movie. I don't know if you remember that part. But anyway, he's, he's going these wrong directions, and as he goes, he tells Little fibs, right? And what happens in the fibs? You know, his, his nose extends. And he forgets what that, whatever she was, fairy, fairy godmother or whatever. You know, and she's telling him, you know, all you got to do is write and you'll be a real boy. Why? He does everything other than what is right and he still ends up a real boy. I wonder how that all worked out. But, you know, the picture along the way is that your conscience is like Jiminy Cricket and it will always be your guide. And I was listening to Jay and Jay didn't say anything wrong. 
But I listened and I thought, I don't think consciences are a good guide. They're a good guide as long as they're informed correctly. But our, unconsci- our conscience is, is kind of formed because of what, we, what community we live in. How people live around us, what we've imagined and understood, all impacts our conscience. And what we think is right and wrong in a given situation is defined by what we see around us and whether we think things are right and wrong in our society. It's not so much that this is eternal truth. You know, conscience, according to Merriam-Webster, is defined this way. Conformity to what one considers to be correct, right, or morally wrong, or morally good. You know, sometimes things that are correct, right, or morally good change, right? I'm not saying that God changes, and I'm not saying the real good changes, but a society thinks things are different after a while. Sometimes we change, and our conscience evolves. And I'm not sure that evolution, in this sense, is a good thing at all. We actually sometimes stop thinking that wrong is wrong and start thinking that wrong is right over time, right? Sometimes we kind of slip. There's this writer, and this is a tough quote, so you're going to have to wade through it with me, but Sophie and I read this book. It was by Madeline Engel. And she described the rules of God in poetic terms. Now, are you all poets? One of you. You, you need to write more poetry, honestly. This is about poetry, so forgive me for this. But Madeline Engel says the Christian life is like this. In your language, you have a form of poetry called the sonnet. There are 14 lines, I believe, all in iambic pentameter. That's a certain meter. That's a very strict rhythm or meter, and each line has to end with a rigid pattern. And if the poet does not do it exactly this way, it is not a sonnet. It might be a poem, but it's not actually conforming to the rules. But within this strict form, the poet has complete freedom to say whatever he wants. You're given the form, but you have to write the sonnet yourself. What you say is completely up to you. Now imagine you're writing your life story, because you are, right? And God comes along and says, you're supposed to live within these boundaries. We're not good at living within these boundaries. We're not good at it at all. Because our conscience shifts, and yet the boundaries, they don't shift. You know, there was a line when I was a kid that says, don't break the Ten Commandments. I don't think anybody ever breaks the Ten Commandments. We break ourselves on the Ten Commandments. When we break one of those rules, we break our lives. The rules don't break. Nothing about our world breaks. It's us that gets broken humanity there was a there's a pier just north of my house in michigan and if you came out of this pier there's these there's these internal piers and then there are these outer piers and every year somebody gets drunk and in the middle of the night forgets about the second set of piers they get out of the no wake zone and they hit the engine sometimes they're these big gigantic uh boats that have lots of horsepower or power and they get they get out of those first pier heads and they decide to turn south or turn north and they forget about the outer pier heads and they hit the get and some of those go 45 miles an hour 55 miles an hour 65 miles an hour they go pretty fast they get going and they hit one of those pier and what do you think happens the the boat breaks right when we break the 10 commandments we don't break the 10 commandments we break us on the 10 commandments like a ship hitting a piece of rock And our lives hit this crushing blow and all of a sudden something bad happens to us. And then we sing that psalm that we started out with, right? Why do we have turmoil in our hearts? Where are you, God? Why have I lost my way? Well, it might be that we've had all of these rules and they're not that big a deal. The rules aren't that tough to follow, but we don't like to live creatively within the center of all those rules like Madeline Engel's telling us about. She says you can do whatever you want within these guidelines. 
Be creative. Follow God in here. He wants to have a relationship with you. He says, love me with all of your heart and soul and strength inside of these lines. And we come along and we say, wow, it's a wet paint sign. wonder if it's still wet. That's what we do, right? That's what we do. All right. We got to move on. But you get the idea about how Deuteronomy builds this rule list for us. It's not just rules. Now, interestingly, the Bible talks about two words, and they are in the New Testament. These are New Testament words. You can find them in Ephesians 5 or 1 Peter 2 and 3. But they are words that describe the walk with God. You know, it's not very easy in, in some senses to obey, and that's what we're saying. But this is how I think the Bible defines obedience, and it might be a little different than you think. Obedience is doing what God tells us, whether we believe in it, or not, or whether we are motivated appropriately or not. So is it a good thing to obey? Yes, one person says. It's not the best thing, but it is a good thing, right? You know, a lot of people in the Bible obey. And obedience just means you're doing what you're told. In this passage, what, 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 we're, what we're studying today is all about obeying, but it says that obedience has a heart. And if you get that heart, maybe the word obedience doesn't fit anymore. Maybe it doesn't mean just to do what you're told, whether you're motivated right or whether you understand the heart of the issue or not. The Bible uses another word, submission. In the New Testament, it says doing what we are told because we are inspired by God's actions in our lives and understand his heart. That's better than obedience, right? When we get the heart of God and all that he's done for our lives and all that he wants to do in our lives in this great exhortive sense of God is wanting to be active in your life and in mine, we want to do all of this stuff. If that's the case, then God loves us and then we are called to walk with him in a personal relationship. It's not just rules then, right? It's not just obeying something. It's actually being a part of it. You know, consciences shift and we miss what it means to obey or submit. We just lose sight of what's right and wrong. And sometimes we need to get back to the heart of what God is all about. So our hearts get connected to him. And then we see these rules in very different ways. And then we realize the rules are there. And that cultural slip that happens, that, that, that evolution from good to bad, we have to interrupt it. In the Bible, you know, there's a storyline and it weaves for hundreds of years. I was trying to keep you awake and I, so I developed this really colorful chart. Are you awake? You with me? All right. This is the whole Old Testament. I need to use the restroom and I'm going to let you read this while I'm gone, okay? And for the next five minutes, you just have to figure out where all the books of the Bible fit on this screen. Can you do that? Maybe not. We'll just show you where Deuteronomy fits and then talk about how the rules change. Look at this. Right on the left-hand side, that's where the slavery in Egypt and Exodus happens, and then they're going to move into the conquest of Canaan, okay? That's where Deuteronomy is written. That's about 1260 B.C., 1260 B.C. That means it's about 3,260 years ago, plus 13. We're in 2013, right? So that makes it 3,273. Did I do that math right? Okay, that's how far back Moses wrote this book. But watch this. You know, we get through all of these different judges and kings, and we get all the way to the 18th king of Judah, the 19th king of Israel. There's a guy named Josiah. And he comes along, and he lives in a time when he's going, maybe we need to turn back to God. And I'm going to read you a passage. Now, it's a little bit long. It's from 2 Kings chapter 22. And I want to read it to you with the mindset that you, you want to kind of ponder 
Just think about what God has been doing and what these people have been doing since Deuteronomy was written. Because we're talking about 600 years. That's a lot longer than our country's been in existence, right? And watch the cultural slippage. We'll talk a little bit as we go. This is 2 Kings chapter 22. It says, Josiah was eight years old. He wasn't quite ready to be a king, I suspect, when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name, now if you're a a pregnant mom or your wife's likely to have a baby soon, you might want to think about the names in this passage. It's very good. Rich, rich names. Okay, so just follow along. His mother's name was Jedediah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. Bozkath, right? Just past Gilbertsville or somewhere up there. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or the left. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple, and have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for their money entrusted to them because they're honest in their dealings. What does it sound like is happening? Every couple months we have this thing at Parker Ford Church. We call it a work day, right? We ask all the guys or ladies to come in and work on something. The trustees head it up. And what we're doing is rebuilding our building from all the damage that's done to it, from all of our kids' ministries and all the different things. You'll see people spraying different sprays on the carpet to try to get out the stains that come from Tuesday night. You find all of these different stuff goes on, picking up cigarette butts outside the front door. We have all these different things that need to be done. That's kind of what's happening here, only on a larger scale, right? And why was the temple in need of carpenters and fix-it people? You know, in Deuteronomy 12, it says that the people were supposed to worship God in only one location, in the temple. And these people had gotten away from it. And when they stopped going to church, they stopped giving to church. And when they stopped giving to church, they stopped working on the church. And the church started to, you know, degenerate, just like all buildings do with nobody in them. And this building was pretty well unused. And the high priest was there, but he wasn't really functionally leading much. And so Josiah comes along and says, listen, all that money that we've saved up, let's do this thing. Let's rehab the building. Let's pull together these these craftsmen and let's see this whole temple be rebuilt because we've lost our way a little bit and let's figure it out. Now watch what happens in the middle of them working on the temple. Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law. Now scholars think of this as Deuteronomy. It might either be the center part of Deuteronomy, 12 through 26, where all the rules are, or it might be the whole book of Deuteronomy, but most scholars think what they found was Deuteronomy. Now I come to your house this afternoon. We're going to have a pop quiz. I'm going to stop in. How long will it take me to find a Bible without your help? Will I find one? On a shelf sitting somewhere next to your, your bedside table? or you'll, you'll have Bibles, right? I have so many Bibles in my house, and I don't have any of them. I, th- let's put it this way. The Bible I like, I only have an E version of. So I have hundreds of Bibles, literally hundreds of Bibles. Shelby's not happy with my book collection, and this is a big part of it, because what do you do with a Bible that you're done with? You can't put it in the trash, right? I give them away, but I can't give enough away. Most people have Bibles in our country. We have so many Bibles in our world. There's Bibles everywhere, right? And the Bible I most like I have on my phone or on my Kindle, and I don't even have a a, a hard copy of it. We have Bibles constantly. If you want a Bible after the church service, you just take one of those red ones from the back of the church. You can have it. You can head right out the door with it. It's no problem. We give Bibles away all the time here. No big deal. These people, they found a Bible, and they were like, oh, my goodness. 
Where's this bed? We haven't seen this thing in maybe decades, maybe centuries. No one knows how long they've gone without the Bible. But they found the book of the law. That's the Bible of their time. It's Deuteronomy. They found it, and they were surprised. Look at this. And they decide they should probably tell the king about it. Let's keep reading. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors of the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book as well. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. What do you think is going to happen when they start reading the Bible? What do you think? When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that, w- that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. He's scared. And why is he scared? Because the book of the Bible, this book of the Bible tells him things that he was supposed to be doing. In all his life, he's been king for 18 years, which means he's 36 years old, one year younger than me. And as he's 36 years old, he's looking at his life and he's like, all of these things that God has been saying were wrong, I thought were right. Things have slipped. Hundreds of years have gone by and we've stopped realizing that God thinks what we're doing is wrong. And he all of a sudden, as the leader of this nation, realized that he was responsible and he's going, God, don't smite me now. I am scared to death. What actually happens out of that is Josiah leads a revival, this mini revival, and people decide to turn back to God. It only lasts for a little bit, though. He dies soon after. This this takes place maybe in about 615 B.C., and in 609 he dies. And you know what happens just after that? His children don't get the message, and his grandchildren don't get the message. Nobody does what's right. That cultural slip continues to happen. Their values, they're not obeying or submitting. They're not doing any of the sort. And then this foreign king comes in, burns down the temple, and destroys their culture. And along the way, I suspect there are these guys who maybe got the memo a little more than others, okay? So people in Israel kind of turn back to God for a minute, but some of them, I think, stuck with it. Because along those first deportations, the king of Babylon pulled a few guys whose names were Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and and Ezekiel. And he pulled them and he took them to Babylon. Now, those are guys who write biblical books, right? We have a book called Daniel. We have a book called Ezekiel. That a revival of Josiah, looking at the word of God and realizing the cultural slip that had happened, he realized, listen, we got to pull this stuff into our lives. And it impacted the kids. And those kids went to a foreign country. And Daniel chapter 9, the greatest repentance prayer in the whole Bible, is prayed. As Daniel says, I've read the word of God and I've realized that we are a mess. And I am sorry for my people's sin, God. And he comes before the Lord and he says, please save us. Give us back our land. And you know what? God listens. A whole bunch of people are again sent back to Israel to resettle it. They build another temple. They start to worship. And for hundreds of years, they try to obey God and they try to figure it out. But you know what happens? They don't follow him with all their heart. That's what literally the prophet Jeremiah says about Josiah's children. They didn't follow me with all of their heart. They didn't love the Lord their God with all of their heart and with all of their soul. They really got their strength in it, but not their heart. They didn't really put this part of them in the mix, so to speak. And they left that part. In fact, Jeremiah says, they turned to me with half a heart. That never works, right? 
God wants all of who we are. Hundreds of years go by and these people try to worship God, but they never get their whole heart into it. And there's this guy born in Bethlehem, little baby, unexpectedly. Mom has to travel overnight to get there and ends up not being able to find an inn and actually gives birth in a stable and they put him in a manger. And he starts to travel around 30 years later and he starts to preach. And what do you think he says? I want, says God, not to just have your behavior. Don't just go to the temple and pay some taxes. Don't just end up in church once a week. Literally, give me your heart. He invents a word that nobody has ever used, at least not the way he used it. He says that these people are hypocrites. Sound familiar? We get the word hypocrite from it today. In his day, it meant actor. And he says, you guys in your religion are all just drama because you've, you never turn back to what God said all the way back in Deuteronomy. If you doubt me, look at the words of Mark chapter 12. Jesus is asked by this teacher of the law. He comes and hears him debating and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important commandment? You'd think maybe it was adultery. You should really stay true to your wife. Or maybe it's that one about not killing people, right? You should definitely not murder anyone. Or maybe it's just not having other gods. But Jesus puts it in another way, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. The most important one answered Jesus is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your, with all your, with all your mind, he adds a line, and with all your... You know, sometimes we think the Old Testament is too old to be relevant. But when Jesus is asked what's the most important thing to figure out in all of your life, he goes and quotes Deuteronomy. When Jesus is tempted... He goes back and he quotes Deuteronomy three times. And he says, this is how we figure out how to walk with God. We have to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. I don't know where you're at today, but you might be able to quote Psalm 45 too in your own words to paraphrase it. You might be wondering, how did I get here? You might be, don't look at the person next to you, but you might be looking at them going, why am I with them anymore? Sometimes that happens to married couples. Sometimes you might be thinking, Where did my, how did my kids end up this way? How have I lost my way in life? Why have I economically ended up where I am? One of the places to look is back at God, maybe the first place. In fact, I suspect it is. And ask yourself, have you followed the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength? And if you're in one of those places of turmoil where you're speaking to your soul and you're going, I just don't get it, soul. Why am I in the middle of such unrest and unpeace? Why can't I pay attention for longer than 30 seconds? Why do I have all this difficulty? It might be that your heart is not turned back to God yet. And what Jeremiah the prophet wrote, he wrote about you and he might have wrote about me. You turn back to me, but you turn back to me with half a heart. Your behavior looks good. Everybody at church thinks you're a good person, but maybe it's not really all of you at the core of your being. God is less than satisfied if he has anything other than all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. God has always been a God of grace, right? Deuteronomy was written by a God who is gracious, pours out his grace and says, let me, let me bring you into this relationship with me. Let me show you the, the, the boundaries. Let me bring you into the fact that you can create poetry with your whole life, but live that, that poem inside of just a few rules. Let me repeat those rules for you. And they all come back to the fact that it has to do with your heart. It has to do with what's going on in here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Join me in prayer.